0: You're listening to In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are Matthew from Sex Work Law Reform Victoria, Nevna Sporowska from the Victorian Pride Lobby, Professor Dennis Altman, and Melbourne DJ Philip Solomon. Well, this week the Andrews government introduced and released its sex work decriminalisation bill into the Victorian Parliament. And I spoke to Matthew from Sex Work Law Reform Victoria shortly after the bill was given its second reading in the Parliament.
1: I have just finished spending two hours reading. Uh, the bill myself and the good news is it looks pretty solid so far decriminalising most forms of sex work there are a few areas of concern um, in the bill itself but it all looks pretty good and I'm really hoping it's going to pass by Christmas what are those areas of concern the area of concern um, is relates to street-based sex work. So what we know from the bill is that it will retain criminal penalties to do with street-based sex work near schools between the hours of 6am and 7pm.
0: Is that kind of reactionary? I'm assuming that there's no street-based sex work happening near schools during those hours anyway.
1: Look, I don't think there's really any evidence that that's occurring right now. The police already have powers to um, charge street-based sex workers who operate in those areas, and those laws have largely been unused for many, many years. So it's probably a reactionary or a symbolic um, move on the government to to please some anti-sex work figures, and I'm just hoping that that won't have too much of an impact on, on our community absolutely it sounds like they're preempting perhaps you know
0: what some reactionary councils might might argue and perhaps you know the Murdoch media as
1: well look i'm sure it's got to be coming from somewhere and i know that it didn't come from the sex work community because when we had a round table with the department in august i spoke and so did all the other sex workers spoke in opposition to any criminal laws that apply to street-based sex workers. So it's clearly come from somewhere else. It sounds like the licensing
0: system here in Victoria will be completely abolished under this bill. Is that the case?
1: Yes, but interestingly, James, it'll be abolished in two separate phases. If this bill passes this year, the first phase will kick in on the 1st of March next year and then the second phase will apply in December 2023.
0: Okay, well, that's quite a big, you know, time gulf, time difference between the two. Uh, what are these first and second stages?
1: Yeah, so quite pleasingly, the first stage will be uh, removing the licensing system as it applies to street-based sex work and private sex workers, and the second phase will apply to brothel owners and managers and the licensing that applies to them. So it'll be a phased rollout. Um, resulting in the complete removal of the Sex Work Act, which is what sex workers have been calling with for decades now. Are you happy with that timeline? I think at this point we're just happy to be getting rid of it, to be honest with you. Um, we just we just want the Sex Work Act completely gone. And, James, I do want to just add in here a, a bit of perspective about, about where we're up to with this and where this has all come from, uh, because... These reforms are the the result of decades and decades of of activism starting back in the 1970s. So none of this is new. Cheryl Overs, who founded the Prostitutes Collective of Victoria in the 1970s and 80s, started this movement here in Victoria and it's been bubbling along ever since and it's been an up and the battle has been tough. There's been strong moments, there's been weak moments. But I just feel a great sense of relief that it, the, um, the end goal seems to be in sight now. And all the sex workers that I've spoken to, they're, they're grateful, they're happy. We're kind of optimistic. And so there's there's an air of optimism. We're all feeling quite optimistic and hopeful that, that unlike South Australia, that we can actually pass this law. Well, the government's got a strong majority in the lower house. Of course, uh,
0: there's a very sympathetic uh, crossbench in the upper house. Uh, When do you think it's going to uh, be voted on in the legislative assembly?
1: Well, all I can say is that it's it's scheduled to be debated a fortnight from now. And I think it's possible that this could be passed both houses of parliament
0: by Christmas. Well, in fact, it could very well be passed before then. I mean, if it's being debated in two weeks, it'll then be passed. Uh, it'll go to the upper house where the cross bench, you know, is is supportive. You would you would think this could be done and dusted
1: in November. Well, it could be. I mean, the, the last sitting day of parliament is the second of December. Uh, I certainly hope it gets passed. Uh, you know, as soon as possible. It's hard to say how the cross bench will react. They'll need to look at the details of it as will all of us. So we'll just have to wait and see.
0: And as you said before, sex workers must be rejoicing. What kind of psychological impact is this having on the collective community? The fact that it's been read for a second time in the lower house uh, and it looks like it's going to be voted on in about two weeks there. Uh, The community must be, as you alluded to before, absolutely delighted and buoyant.
1: That's a good way to describe it. Um, I'd say um, James, the best way to describe it is a combination of anxiety and excitement. So imagine that you're sitting your year 12 exams, you're just about to go into the room knowing that you could pass or fail, and that a lot is is riding on the result. and you know you've got butterflies in the stomach, but you're also really excited and optimistic. That kind of sums up how we're all feeling right now, I suspect.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Any other reactions from the community about components of this bill that you're aware of? Other groups, other sex work groups, apart from sex work law reform, Victoria, uh, what are your sources telling you?
1: Well, generally people are are grateful. I have not had a chance to speak to many people about the details of the bill because I've just finished reading it Sort of this afternoon. It's now one thirty p.m. on Wednesday, the thirteenth of October. So, I will be uh, reaching out to all of my sex worker peers in the coming hours and days, and I'll get a i will get have a much better idea later. But for now, my, my initial reading of the bill, uh, it looks promising, and particularly James. I mean, I have to say we spoke about local government last time I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago now, and there's one part of the bill that is really, really, really strong on the um, issue of local government. Can I just read out to you uh, what it says? Absolutely. It says, there's a requirement that local government law enacted under the Local Government Act must not be inconsistent with the policy intent of this bill to decriminalise sex work and reduce discrimination against sex workers. So councils will not have the option to introduce discrimination-based planning laws. And that's a really significant um, part of the bill. Absolutely,
0: because I think, you know, the law framework that we've had, you know, in Victoria and around the country has shamed and stigmatised sex workers and marginalised them so much. And it's great local governments not being given the capacity under this legislation to do that.
1: That's exactly right, because a big part of... A big arena of discrimination that sex workers face occurs at the local government level and I spoke on your show a few weeks ago about the attitude of the city of Borondara and how it was not supportive of sex workers rights and so that part of the bill will hopefully provide sex workers with a, a level of protection against councils that may not necessarily be on board
0: early days yet it's had the second reading it's progressing through the parliament uh matthew will be watching this one closely as i know you will be and other sex work organizations will be uh thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3cr
1: james thank you so much for having me on on this particularly exciting and momentous day for sex workers rights in victoria 3cr
0: Recently pioneering academic, author and gay liberation activist Professor Dennis Altman announced he had resigned from the Victorian Pride Lobby because of its campaign for more LGBTIQA candidates to be elected to the Victorian Parliament. But first, a statement from the Victorian Pride Lobby.
2: My name is Nevena Spirovska and I'm the co-convenor of the Victorian Pride Lobby. The Lobby is a community organisation powered by volunteers. Our mission is and always has been to achieve social justice for lesbian, gay, queer, bisexual and same-sex attracted Victorians. Recently, the lobby has drafted submissions on how action on climate change is necessary to advance LGBTIQ rights, led the call for sanctions to protect LGBT people living in repressive regimes and pays the rent every month to a sovereign body of Aboriginal Victorians. We launched the It Takes More campaign to support LGBTIQA plus people to run and get elected at the next state election in order to address the shockingly low number of LGBTIQ plus people in the Victorian Parliament. We know from our experience and from the research that when LGBTIQA plus people are elected, they can and do successfully work across party lines to achieve reforms that benefit the wider LGBTIQA plus community. It Takes More is targeting LGBTIQA plus Victorians and political parties with the important goal of getting more LGBTIQA people to stand for elections. It Takes More is non-partisan and is not an endorsement of any candidate or party. In 2020, we coordinated an award winning rainbow local government campaign. Together, we elected a record number of LGBTIQA people to councils across Victoria. And by supporting LGBTIQA councillors and working with our allies, we also achieved a record number of LGBTIQA reforms at councils across the state. It Takes More seeks to mirror the success of our rainbow local government campaign through a two-pronged approach of electing more LGBTIQA plus people to parliament and securing commitments from all parties to implement LGBTIQA plus priorities in parliament. The lobby remains deeply connected to social justice, equality and human rights. We work constructively, cooperatively and respectfully with trans and gender diverse, intersex, asexual and other community organisations to achieve positive social change for the entire LGBTIQA community. We believe the community works best when it works together.
0: And now our interview with Professor Dennis Altman.
3: It's nice to
2: be back. Tell
0: us why you resigned as a member of the Victorian Pride Lobby.
3: Okay, look, I, first of all, I must make a shameful admission. Apparently, I was not a paid-up member. I had assumed that I still was. I had been a member in the past, and because I was getting their messages, uh, I assumed I was still a member. Okay, having got that out of the way, I am really very uncomfortable with the position that identity trumps ideology, I'm putting it very simply, the idea that we should go out and support anyone, whatever their views on policies, who is, quote, GLBTIQ+, whatever that might be included, seems to me wrong-headed. I'm all in favour of supporting and looking for candidates who support our issues, but that's a rather different concept. Do you feel
0: that we could have the best of both worlds, uh, that we can have LGBTIQ MPs elected who embrace progressive policies and have strong policy minds that are able to sell them to the electorate?
3: Look, I think that it boils down to a very old argument. And in a sense, you know, I, I recognize that I might sound like an old nostalgia, or uh, there might be an old nostalgia here for gay liberation. My belief is that we cannot separate our issues from broader issues of social justice and therefore i find it not particularly attractive if we get more conservative mps uh, even if they are openly gay lesbian trans or whatever and there are many examples in politics of people uh, who are um, and who also support policies that i find deeply repugnant
0: So do you find that we've moved into kind of a state of mind in the community at times where identity politics is sort of, you know, um, overshadowing ideology?
3: Oh, very much. Look, and I think that to some extent, of course, I understand it and I understand why the lobby thinks this is important. But I would adhere to the idea that basically social justice, equality, fairness, human rights, all of those concepts are indivisible, that it doesn't make sense to argue for our rights if we're not prepared to see them in a broader context. So that getting more conservative MPs does not seem to me a great uh, asset. And I am concerned that the way the lobby is proceeding seems to suggest that that's all that matters, that we can disregard what a candidate stands for as long as they tick our particular box.
0: When you wrote The Homosexuals in the early 1970s and when you were advocating so strongly and really putting gay liberation on the map in Australia then, uh, how would you have looked, do you think, at this particular issue if you could look into a crystal ball back then and see how identity politics is sort of manifested in the community?
3: Look, I think that um, the position I have now in some ways hasn't changed very much in that, of course, in the gay liberation days of the 1970s, uh, there was a strong sense that our struggles were interconnected. I mean, you may you, you won't remember, James, but there was one of the early slogans of protests um, in Australia was um, hands-off gays, women, and blacks. I mean, there was this sense that there were common struggles and that our liberation depended on the liberation of other people. Now, I think that we have probably underestimated the way in which, as the community grew, as more and more people came out, as different sorts of identities emerged, uh, Obviously, there would be a range of political views within the community, and of course I accept that, and of course I want to work with people of different views. My position is simply that we don't make our sexual or gender identities the only yardstick in determining whom we support. Um, And I'll give you a simple example. If, for example, there are currently three openly... Gay Liberal MPs in the federal parliament. Now, if I were to support them against a Labour or a Greens candidate, I'm not only supporting their election, I'm supporting the election of the Morrison government, which hardly has a great record on issues that are concerned to our community.
0: A little closer to home, though, there are only two openly queer MPs within the Andrews government, yet they have these incredibly progressive policies. Uh, They've passed these wonderful law reforms for the LGBTIQ community. How do you see that gulf? How do you see that disparity? Do you think there are some issues with pink ceilings within uh, the actual party itself rather than the government, but say within the the processes that pre-select candidates?
3: Look, I'm really glad you raised that because I've been struck by that as well. Uh, And I think that the lesson is that what matters is the policies and the positions of politicians, not their identities. Uh, And, of course, you're right. The Andrews government, um, possibly along with the, the government in the ACT, which is led by an openly gay man. But the Andrews government stands out, not because it's had openly queer MPs, but because it has had significant senior ministers who got it and have been prepared to work with the community. And of course, there have been some really important people, I think, in making that happen. And, you know, the one person I think we would all agree who has been really important has been Roe Allen in, in her time as the commissioner. So, for me, the lesson is very clear. Just having people who tick the identity box doesn't by itself produce the outcomes that we want. So I guess
0: you would be critical of uh, the view that has been raised by some people in the community that perhaps political parties should consider targets or quotas for LGBTQMPs for pre-selection for winnable seats.
3: Yes, I I think it's a totally absurd idea. Um, I mean, I think it's absurd in the sense that the boundaries of our community constantly shift, Um, and so it's very difficult to know who would come within and would not come within that. But more importantly, I think what people forget is that members of parliament do two things. They represent us, and in that sense, I understand exactly the need for a diverse range of politicians, but they also determine the government of the day. And in a country which has such extraordinarily rigid party discipline, very few countries, democratic countries have party discipline in force to the extent we do, but given that, we have to look at their party allegiance And we have to look at what they do. And there are clear parallels, of course, with the the argument that there should be more women. Yes, there should be more women in politics. But do we really want to go out and get more Bronwyn bishops? And I think, you know, when you put it like that, it becomes much more complex than just saying identity is the crucial issue.
0: And I guess if you're having conservative right-wing queer MPs elected, that in some ways undermines the identity politics from a progressive point of view that perhaps put them there in the first place.
3: I think that's, well, I think this is a really interesting question. Um, I think that it is important that openly gay men, I'm not sure if there are any open lesbians in the Liberal Party at a federal or state level, but there certainly are openly gay men, and I think uh, they have been important. But in the end, if it came down to it, would I prefer that they be replaced by a straight member of parliament from a more progressive party? I have no no question. The answer to me is clearly yes, I would prefer it. So, you know, I actually like Tim Wilson. I want to go on record as saying that because a lot of the Facebook chat has been, I think, quite nastily and unnecessarily hostile to Tim. I like Tim, but I'd be very happy if Tim Wilson lost Goldstein uh, to a Labour candidate.
0: Yes, it's been really interesting seeing the responses to your position on on Facebook, and it seems that, you know, mature people, older people from the LGBTIQ community are strongly agreeing with your position, Uh, and perhaps younger ones may not. Is there a generational issue here, do you think?
3: I don't think that's true, James. I mean, I have looked... I have been... First, I should say, I don't think I've ever posted anything that has had this sort of response. I'm a bit overwhelmed. It's almost up to 300 uh, likes and one dislike. Um, I don't think, by the way, that's a a fair measure of anything, but it does suggest people are interested. What strikes me is the diversity of responses. And, you know, I don't know everyone who's responded, but certainly among the ones I know, quite a lot of them are very much younger than I am. So I don't think that's true. And you would have to go through and look and, you know, figure out who all these people are um, before you make that assertion. It's fascinating, isn't it? So it's really struck a chord. Why do you think that is? I think that it's because, and, you know, I should say, I didn't really think this through very much, and maybe this wasn't the best way of raising the issue, but I'm really glad I've raised the issue because I think what we need is to think much more carefully about the limits of identity politics. That is, yes, it is very important that people can feel free to come out. It is very important that we have a diverse community which represents a whole range of attitudes to gender and sexuality. But I think we have to think through what do we actually want? And We also need to recognise that within our communities, there are many people for whom sexuality is only one of the axes on which they're discriminated against. Uh, Think, for example, if you're an Indigenous lesbian or a refugee trans person. For you, the issues can't be separated from the broader questions of policy, which is precisely the point that I was trying to make. Uh, and that's why, in the end, I, I don't regret at all what I've said, even though I do regret having not checked very carefully my up-to-date membership of the organisation I wanted to resign from. So when you
0: contacted the lobby, what did they say to you?
3: Well, several people have from the lobby have been in touch with me. I've had some very pleasant uh, exchanges uh, with people. Um, I think that... One of the things that made me most uncomfortable, which several people in the lobby have said they want to take back and think about, is that in the, the press release that went out, they actually say that um, the media, that is the queer media, should only talk to openly queer candidates about our issues, which to me is is, is uh, totally counterproductive. I mean, if you have someone um, a straight politician who's been supporting us right through why on earth do you want to not listen to them and why in fact do you want to give priority to someone who has no record uh, but possibly for uh, political gain has decided to come out
0: yes it would be very odd if the mainstream queer media wasn't talking to martin foley a straight man and the minister for our community here in victoria who's um, been at the forefront of the passage of these progressive law reforms
3: indeed and uh I think. Look, I think that what we need is a much more sophisticated discussion of what identity politics mean, uh, and I think that that applies not, of course, not just to us. It applies across Australian politics altogether. And I, as I say, I think we have to recognise that, and in, in this discussion, the importance of party discipline does really limit how far an individual's identity uh, will determine what they're able to do politically.
0: Dennis, I hope you don't mind me asking you about federal politics, but we've discussed the Religious Discrimination Bill a lot on this program. Uh, I'm particularly interested to get your views on the federal government's religious privilege narrative that seems to be driving it.
3: You know, I think what concerns me most, and it's all part of this, is the extent to which we in Australia have fundamentalist religious schools uh, more than most other liberal democracies. And I, of course, am appalled by the fact that somebody can be sacked from being, say, a gardener at a Catholic school because she's a lesbian. But I'm much more concerned in a way by what is going on in the range of fundamentalist schools that now exist for pretty well all religions in Australia. What are kids being taught about sex and gender? What is it like for a kid trying to come to terms with the fact they may not quite fit in if they're in a school which is constantly teaching them a very narrow and restrictive view? So I think that the debate on the religious freedom Legislation, which, you know, where I totally support what Equality Australia and other groups are doing, ought to lead us to a bigger discussion about how far can a secular democratic society allow the existence of deeply fundamentalist uh, schools which separate kids out from the rest of the community.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? I know when the marriage equality law was passed, we had this conversation where you pointed out that, you know, sex was kind of missing from the narrative in the debate. And it seems that that's kind of the case still, isn't it? That when we talk about identity politics and we talk about queer rights, sex is kind of out of the equation. What are your
3: thoughts on that? Oh, look, I'm going to get into trouble again because I... I mean, I absolutely agree with you, James. And, and there is a weird puritanism um, that one finds in, in, in part of our movement.
0: Dennis Ottman, always wonderful to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. It was great. and that was the maxi version of Jam Jamfam by Planning to Rock, a selection from our next guest, DJ Philip Solomon.
4: Philip, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, James.
0: Tell us about the live streaming you've been doing.
4: Uh, so I've been DJing twice a week on the internet. I uh, I DJ once a week on my own kind of live stream on Mixcloud Live, and I, uh, I just you know, play whatever the hell I want, really, which is really fun. And I play for about three hours from like nine till 12. And then on Tuesdays, I play for this uh, really fun uh, online party called uh, Adam. And, uh, and I play in the not-so-dark room, which is basically uh, uh, a place for uh, men to kind of chat on the internet uh, while I play some sexy tunes in the background. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun, actually. It's kind of kept me sane during this, uh, the world's longest lockdown.
0: And it's <laughs> kept a lot of other people sane. I mean, it's been great for the community <laughs> and giving people a sense yeah. of
4: community. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: I was pretty um, I was pretty impressed uh, when I looked at one of your Adams and it was actually everyone was nude, including you.
4: Yes, yes. I, I'm one of the world's only uh, naked DJs, as far as I'm aware. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty, but I can't see them on the internet. So, uh, yeah, so I feel like I'm quite special in that regard.
0: So you've definitely tapped into a niche market, if you like, here in the gay community <laughs> in Melbourne.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. It's quite fun.
0: Tell us a bit more about the community connections that your, your DJing online has provided during this time.
5: Yeah,
4: I mean it's been really great uh, seeing the guys. You know, there's definitely a lot of regulars on on Adam, and uh, and uh, and so I get to see them quite uh, uh, you know every week. Uh, so that's been fun, and, uh, and it makes me feel appreciated, obviously.
6: Three C R.
0: There's always something, you know, ritualistic about about dance music, you know, especially trance music as well. And, and especially on the gay scene, do you find that, you know, online you've still got that ritualistic element to the music?
4: I mean, it's really interesting because um, things get hot and heavy in the not-so-dark room. And I feel like uh, the music kind of drives that a little bit. I know uh, I actually used to work in a sauna many years ago in Sydney. And um, whenever there was uh, like someone uh, absent from the front desk, I would jump in and like put my own music on. (laughs) Um, uh, And I've always had, um, (laughs) it's funny, but I actually had a dream um, after hearing um, uh, Johnny Seymour from, from Sydney, uh, who is one half of, of the incredible DJ outfit and producing outfit Stereogamous? Um, I I heard him uh, many years ago in Sydney when I used to live there, and he used to play at a at a sauna called Ken's, and uh, and and he had these um, these sets called sauna sessions, and I was just like, wow, that would be so cool to do, and now I'm doing it. I mean, virtually. At the moment, but last year I actually got a chance to play at um, a very famous institution, Wet on Wellington in uh, in Melbourne, and uh, and I uh, I actually did a set during their uh, Boxing Day party. Sorry, not their Boxing Day party, their Christmas Eve party, and uh, and that was a lot of fun. And my my basically my uh, sauna playing dreams came true, <laughs> and and I and I really love. Um, I mean, I think sex and music are definitely intricately linked and, uh, you know, like it's that same kind of thing of, uh, you know, the rhythms of our bodies and being connected to our bodies and and I think um, being able to play music in a very kind of um, sexually charged environment is actually quite fun and quite, uh, um, I don't know, fulfilling, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Do you think you'll continue the online performances as Adam uh, as we open up? Do you think you'll be doing a combination of online DJing and real DJing
4: face-to-face in the flesh? That's actually a really good question. I have thought about this myself and I think what's probably going to happen or what could happen is that we might be able to... um, to live stream it while I'm playing in in the live venue, so yeah, I guess I guess it's absolutely possible. In terms of my Friday night things, um, my my goats milk live uh, performances, I I feel like, I mean, once people can go to clubs, I feel like they're probably not going to be that interested in tuning in online. But I think it might be nice for Adam because Adam is um, primarily a men-only event. Uh, and so I think it might be nice to have uh, like a, a, a more democratic uh, set kind of playing while, while the, the kind of men-only version is happening in, in real life. So I think it might be nice for, I mean, not even uh, men, but just people who don't really want to go and be naked in public, um they might want to just you know a party on a on a thursday night which is when uh, adam usually is and so yeah i think it might be fun to have like a little um house party set um streaming out into the world while i'm also playing in the venue itself i'm sure it's not too complicated um i say that now <laughs>
0: virtual naked DJing where the audience is all naked as well that must be wonderful for kind of you know helping people to get over their kind of you know our uh, concerns about body
4: image absolutely absolutely and I think we have like a variety of different kinds of men at Adam it's um it's a, v- a very very welcoming space uh and that's kind of why I, I first started going actually because you know um as as much as I love the the queer parties the techno parties and the and the and the sort of parties that I go to regularly um, as a as a punter and as a photographer, I I did sometimes feel uh, a little bit not up to scratch in terms of of uh, body body presentation. And I think Adam is really great in that sense because it basically says no matter what you look like, no matter what your body looks like, um, you're welcome here, and and you're welcome to be comfortable, and you you don't have to show anything that you don't want to uh you definitely have to show your face but uh if you um if you're uh uncomfortable about showing your body you don't have to uh, which is actually uh, a really nice thing and it kind of helps people um and also it's in the comfort of their own home so it's kind of like this this kind of nurturing nudist environment which is Really lovely, actually. And, um, and and Adam, in real life, is also a very welcoming, nurturing environment um, with the added bonus of um, human interaction, <laughs> face-to-face interaction.
6: 3CR.
0: You're listening to an interview with DJ Philip Solomon on 3CR's In Your Face. Do you feel like you're kind of, you know, rejuvenating and reinventing, like, you know... DJing on the gay scene here in Melbourne, that you're at the forefront of a new trend?
4: Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, to be honest, uh, I don't know if many parties are still playing online. I mean, at the beginning of lockdown, there definitely was a huge variety of queer parties that were online and doing amazing, um, well-presented products but uh, but I think that's kind of died down a little bit. And it's really quite lovely that um, that Adam is still going. And it's kind of giving people, um, you know, something to, to look forward to on a Tuesday night, really. Um, and uh, I just feel like it's kind of... Like, its primary target is not really party people. It's actually people who may not necessarily have a lot of contact with the outside world for, you know, obviously for the main reason of, of uh, lockdown, but also just in general, they may not have had the the networks um, that, that require, you know, you going out into the world and possibly drinking. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, that's not really what they're looking for. I feel like for a lot of people, they just, need to talk to people and the interesting thing is you know adam has two rooms i'm in the not so dark room which is the kind of sexier one and the um and the main room is kind of a a place just to chat and i think it's really lovely that it's continued to be a service for for people who you know who aren't able to go out obviously but also who haven't really gone out in, in general and they feel like you know they can they you know they have the confidence to be able to talk to people online but they may not be able to you know bring themselves to like get out there and not not just get out there but be naked in, in public so i think it's a, it's a nice i guess it's a bit of a community service
0: It's almost therapeutic. Why do you think that, you know, you've kept going, you've kept going doing the online stuff as a DJ, as a virtual DJ, and others have stopped? And as you keep going, you keep reinventing it and keep repackaging it and keep, you know, being so responsive to community needs. What gives you that ability when others, you know, have stopped doing that?
4: Well, I have to be very honest here. I, I actually don't run Adam. I, <laughs> I'm i just the DJ. Um, it's actually uh, a, a very uh, important member of the community, uh, Ben. Um, I don't know if uh, he's happy with me <laughs> telling everyone his surname, but uh, Ben, who, who runs Adam, who's been running Adam for many years now. I can't really tell you how many years he's been running it for. Um, he's actually the really the driving force behind it. and he is is definitely one of those people that doesn't um, doesn't let anything uh, get in the way of him uh, you know connecting to people and, and running his parties. and um, you know he's run quite a few parties over the years, but Adam's been like the most consistent and the most kind of uh, well attended um, over the last I, I think it's at least four years, but I please don't quote me on that um but yeah ben's been been running it and and he was the one who first was like let's let's go online and 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 it's funny because i've been hassling from him for a really long time to to dj in at the physical event but because of like security concerns and 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 just like you know it's not always got a huge amount of people attending well it, it didn't used to um he he was kind of hesitant to, to kind of uh, commit to having me as a DJ uh, for a while, and then finally he was like, "Yes, yes, let's let's have you, let's have you uh, uh, in uh, in the DJ booth." And then you know, like a week or two later, uh, Melbourne got locked down, so <laughs> it was kind of hilarious. And then when we did go into lockdown, he was like, "Well, let's just keep it going," uh, and he he got. Um, He got to, I mean, we worked together to try and work out how to make it work. Um, We actually started on Facebook, which was a complete nightmare uh, because Facebook actually will, um, they have, you know, copyright restrictions and all kinds of things, and they don't have the licensing to be able to allow DJs to play. And so I uh, did a a couple of live, live streams on Facebook and Ben invested all of this time and energy and money into, like, making it work. And then, you know, I would get half of my songs, uh, you know, muted by the Facebook algorithm. And then eventually he was like, well, Zoom is a a thing. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to be saying their name (laughs) publicly. But basically he started using a um, a special uh, teleconferencing program and, and it's actually quite lovely because it's got a, a quite kind of intimate envir- environment and it's, it can be, you know, um, you, you can stop un, unwanted people from coming in, as in, you know, people who might be there just to, um, you know, uh, uh, treat it as a bit of a zoo. And so Zoom turned out to be actually quite a good platform or that teleconferencing program uh, it turned out to be a really good platform for uh, this particular party because of its uh, of its intimacy and you know the sound quality is quite good and so it turned out to be um, something that actually worked and it didn't require too much fiddling around and I think that's why we've continued to to run it a number of other queer parties. Uh, went online and they had all of this amazing production and you know they had like vision switching and lights and visuals and the whole thing and I think people just got uh, fatigued, uh, not necessarily the audience, but also I think the audience, definitely the audience, um, kind of got sort of tired of this. Uh, I, I guess um, this idea that yeah we're having a party, but not really having a party, you know what I mean? And I think, you know, like I used to have uh, conversations with friends on Zoom all the time. Like every every weekend, I'd be like, let's let's have a Zoom party, and um, and people just get get fatigued. But for some reason, Adam, I guess because it does provide that that connection for people who don't have that opportunity. I guess you know some of us have the opportunity to go for walks with our friends or what have you. Um, And some people don't. And I think Adam is, it kind of fills in that niche. So yeah, it's I I don't think it's just about the nudity, although that definitely helps. Um, but, uh, But I think a lot of it is to do with connection and just, you know, being able to talk to people in the community.
0: Absolutely. And it's awesome stuff. Philip Solomon, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR.
4: My pleasure. Thanks a lot, James.
7: There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very, you know, important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture
0: and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
5: listening to 3CR Radio